0: Good morning, um, it's with great pleasure that I introduce the right honourable uh, MP for Leicester West, uh, Patricia Hewitt, who as you know has presided over what probably have been the most radical uh, healthcare reforms since the NHS was set up and as most of you undoubtedly know her, uh, on that brief introduction I'll just hand over to Patricia to talk about what's happening in the next ten years.
1: Thank Thank you, thank you very much indeed for that uh, introduction and can I begin by thanking colleagues at, uh, at the LSE and particularly Professor Julian Legrand uh, as well as yourself for hosting this lecture here this morning. It's a real pleasure to be here again and a great pleasure to see uh, so many of you here. What I want to do this morning is just set out what I see happening in the NHS and the issues that we're going to have to confront over the next decade or so. Because once again, the NHS is under attack. It's under attack from those who've never believed in a comprehensive NHS, free at the point of use. It's under attack from those who don't believe that the NHS is is sustainable. Listen, for instance, to Mr Lees, speaking for Doctors for Reform, who said that their ambition was, and I quote, to introduce funds not raised by tax-based revenues were very drawn by social insurance and other models. Listen to the proposers of the resolution at this month's BMAGP conference who called for resources for routine care outside core hours should be partially or wholly provided by a fee charged to the patient. Now I passionately believe that they and others who make similar arguments are wrong and this morning I'll set out why. But let me begin by standing, say, 10 years in the future and just imagining the kind of NHS we could have there, a future where those calling for rationing and co-payments have had their way, where the only guarantee of treatment is to a basic core of NHS entitlements, where a £20 charge for convenient GP appointments was just the prelude to means-tested co-payments for all GP appointments, for a e attendances and hospital admissions, where you can have drugs and treatments that aren't included in the basic package, but only if you pay extra. Where everyone who can afford it, and many who can't, take out private health insurance and the inadequate resources available to the NHS are further diminished, offered by a subsidy to those who go private. Now the people who propose Co-payments, top-up fees, this kind of change to the core funding of the NHS are attacking the fundamental principles of the NHS. The first one, an NHS that's available to all based on clinical need and free at the point of use. That principle which makes the NHS the fairest health service in the world is not some relic of wartime solidarity. It's even more relevant in the face of 21st century science. Because a system that's based on insurance and patient selection will simply fail in a world where we can forecast disease by analyzing a baby's genetic makeup. Private insurance works on uncertainty and shared risk. And as science removes so much of that uncertainty, private health insurance will remove its risk by either charging more or excluding people. And only the super-rich will escape that blight. Just look at what is happening already in the United States. But the second principle, an NHS funded by all of us through collective taxation. The NHS is a social compact between the young and the old, the rich, the poor, the taxpayer and the non-taxpayer, the well and the sick. It's primarily paid for by working people, It's used primarily by the very young, the old, and those without salaried income. If that trust, if that social compact breaks down, if young working people in particular don't think it'll be there for them, they will withdraw their support and their willingness to pay the taxes required to maintain it. And that undermines the very foundation stone upon which the NHS is built. And that's why we need an NHS that patients love, that staff are proud of, that the public trusts. Ten years ago, we said we had 24 hours to save the NHS and I've no doubt that without a change of government, the NHS would have withered and weakened and with each year of neglect, the case for scrapping it would have been made stronger. And instead, we put the NHS, if you like, into intensive care. We saved it from 18 years of neglect and over the last ten years, we've reversed its decline. It's involved many difficult decisions, immensely hard work for the staff of the NHS. But the reality at the moment is that no major political party, whatever its real instincts, would dare to fight an election openly saying, as the Conservatives did at the last election, that they would pay for people to leave it. So now what we have to do is build an NHS can thrive in the face of today's challenges and they are huge challenges and they face the health service in every developed country of the world whatever its funding system. As the population ages, numbers of people over 65 set to rise sharply older people with long term conditions who have a right to expect that the NHS that they have paid for will be there for them. But on top of that demographic challenge, as technology and science progresses, the NHS can do so much more for more people, driving up the costs. And yes, greater efficiency will come, particularly with those advances in technology. But the ability to do more for more people at greater cost always seems to overwhelm the ability to do the same at lower cost. And then as our lifestyles change, lifestyle diseases like diabetes, are occurring in people at a younger and younger age. Professor Ian Gilmore, for instance, president of the Royal College of Physicians, who says when he began practicing some years ago, cirrhosis of the liver was a disease of 60-year-olds. Now, routinely, he diagnoses it in people in their 30s. And then, too, rising expectations. As people become better educated, work harder, live longer... Even as the NHS improves, they demand more. More from the service, more from how it's delivered. Quick responses, more information on new developments, access to services when it suits them, not when it suits the providers. In England this year, we will spend over £90 billion on the NHS, up from £34 billion in 1997. That record investment helped to save the NHS and today despite the very difficult decisions that were needed to restore the NHS to financial balance over the last 12 months, over 9 out of 10 recent hospital patients tell us they were that their care was good or very good or excellent and they are telling us that the NHS is even better than it was 12 months ago but the public as a whole aren't yet persuaded. Those who haven't experienced the changes at first hand aren't convinced that they're getting extra value, getting real value for the extra money that they've contributed. And they're right. There is still more to do before the NHS everywhere achieves the levels of efficiency and effectiveness and focus on the patient that the best do already and that are essential if we're to cope with these huge challenges. But at some point in the future perhaps in another 10 years time the nation will feel that it needs to make another step change in health spending. The step change that we made when Gordon Brown decided as Chancellor to raise national insurance contributions. And all the evidence shows that as individuals get richer, as countries get richer, they choose to spend a larger proportion of their income on health and health care. So the question in 10 years' time won't be whether we're going to spend more money on health care, but how we're going to spend more money on health care. Will it go collectively into the National Health Service through taxation again, or individually into co-payments and private insurance? And the answer to that depends on whether the public as a whole believe that the NHS can spend their money effectively and whether they trust the quality of service that the NHS is offering them. There is no doubt at all that recent years have left real bruises, particularly upon staff morale, but also upon public confidence. So how do we rebuild confidence in the NHS and persuade the next generation that it's still worth investing in? For a growing chorus, the answer is independence, independence. Stop the changes, stop the political interference, set the NHS free. Give it an independent board. That's what we're now hearing. Let it get on with the job. No, it's a seductive idea. There have been moments in the last few months when it um, might have seduced even me. Surely the NHS is more capable of managing itself than the government. But let's just think about it. Start with size and scale. The NHS spending over £90 billion this year. If the NHS was a country, it would be the 33rd biggest economy in the world, bigger than new European Union transition economies like Romania and Bulgaria. Would the Prime Minister of such a nation seriously propose today to take the entire economy of their country and put it under a single independent board Every organisation in the hands of one owner, run as one entity? Of course not. The NHS is four times the size of the Cuban economy and even today more centralised than Cuba. That's part of its problem. And you don't solve the problem by believing that a modern health service can be run like a 1960s nationalised industry. Putting a doctor or a manager or a patient's champion at the head of an independent NHS board might well be more popular than having a politician in charge but as soon as the board started making difficult decisions and they wouldn't be doing their job properly if they weren't the attraction I think would soon uh, wear off. Now supporters of NHS independence cite the success the very real success of Bank of England independence but again just take a second to think about the comparison. The Bank of England has the independence to make one critical decision within a framework and to a goal set by government. They do not have responsibility for every part of the economy or every part of even one sector of the economy. And that's why I think the terms of much of the current debate about independence are simply a red herring. Because for me, the real issue is not independence or no independence – But what kind of independence? As Gordon Brown said just a few days ago, what you want is the maximum local autonomy for your doctors and consultants and nurses and managers who are getting on with the job on a day-to-day basis. And that is exactly what we're doing. Because when the NHS was founded nearly 60 years ago, it was fashioned by necessity on the model of the times, centralised, bureaucratic, hierarchical, top-down. Nye Bevan's phrase, you remember, if a bedpan is dropped on a hospital floor in Tredegon, its noise should resound in the Palace of Westminster. It's haunted health ministers ever since. But at the time, it reassured people. A centrally governed NHS was the right system for its time and it delivered the British people from the fear of illness. But the structures that were right in the 1940s aren't right today. The structures that were right in the 1960s when the District General Hospital was defined and planned, they're not right for today either. For the NHS to succeed in the 21st century, it must be neither a monolith nor a market. It can't be a Soviet-style centralised organisation where information flows up and orders flow down either from Richmond House or from an independent board. That model is simply out of date. It's incapable of providing the personalised, responsive care that we rightly demand these days. It's incapable, too, of both the speed of innovation and the scale of efficiency that are essential in modern healthcare. But it also cannot be a US-style free market either that leaves millions of people without even basic health insurance and millions more inadequately protected. Instead, the modern NHS must move from being a public sector monopoly to a truly patient-led public service. And that means doing more than simply changing the relationship between ministers and senior managers. It means transforming the entire relationship between the NHS and the public, creating a system that's held accountable by the public with politicians playing our appropriate role. Now, despite the myth of government ministers controlling every local decision, we've actually taken some big steps in the last decade towards creating a more independent and a truly self-improving NHS. In 1999, for instance, we started to appoint the first independent national clinical directors, the Tsars, who bring together, they're senior clinicians, they bring together the most respected clinical and patient experts in cancer, mental health, a range of different areas, to create national service frameworks. Real statement of best practice that then guide the NHS, guide staff as to what they should be aiming at, guide patients as to what they should expect. The same year, Alan Milburn created the National Institute for clinical excellence, NICE. Taking over the power to determine what drugs and technologies the NHS should use and putting those decisions in the hands of clinicians, not politicians. And now NICE admired around the world, even, or maybe particularly, when it's making difficult decisions. Now, NICE has approved in whole or in part 36 out of the 41 new cancer drugs that it's appraised. It's turned down just five. But each time that NICE, after very careful, clinically-led, independent evaluation, decides not to recommend a particular treatment, what do we get? Another chorus of demands for political interference. Often from the very same people who are arguing the NHS should be made entirely independent. Eight years ago as well, we established the Commission for Health Improvement, now the Healthcare Commission, and the Commissions for Social Care and Mental Health, all of them soon to be brought together in off-care. But we made them responsible for setting standards, inspecting and reporting on every hospital, mental health service and social care provider in England, again independent of government. And then in 2004, we established NHS Foundation Trusts 67 of them now, many more to come, independent of Whitehall, not owned or directed by the Secretary of State or the Department of Health, accountable to their own members, with an independent regulator, but making their own decisions on how best to serve their patients. And again, it's worth recalling that the two main opposition parties, now so wedded to independence in principle, voted against independent foundation trusts in practice. Now, has the transparency that comes with this growing independence undermined public confidence in the NHS in the short term, in some cases? Quite possibly yes, because what it's done is reveal what was previously hidden by professional autonomy and public sector monopoly and it's provided grist to the lobbying and the media mill Any tabloid will always be able to make a front page headline out of 50% of hospitals are worse than average. Does that mean we were wrong to do it? No, I don't think so. If we're going to build trust in the next generation, we'll only do it by meeting their expectations. And part of the public's and patient's expectations these days is transparent information. It comes with the information age. We expect As a patient, to have staff take time to explain to me my condition and my treatment options. We expect to be able to get healthcare information from all around the world. We also expect, as citizens, to know what's going on and get involved in collective decisions. But at the same time, as we introduced more independence into the NHS, it would be foolish to pretend that we didn't also introduce more centralisation, more top-down direction, more command and control. We did that in particular through national targets. Why do we do national targets? To make the NHS address what was the patient's number one priority ten years ago, unacceptable waits for treatment. Eighteen months sometimes much longer for life saving operations, 24 hours wait on an A&E trolley. And the reality Uncomfortable though it might be is that without targets, the NHS would not have seen the transformation of A&E services, the dramatic fall in waiting times, or the thousands of extra lives saved over the last five years. But treatment for the NHS when it was in intensive care is not the same as the treatment it needs when it is now really beginning to thrive. National targets, and we found this in other public service areas, can deliver good but they can't create world class and as Sir Michael Barber the Prime Minister's former Chief Advisory on Delivery said flogging a system can no longer achieve these goals reform is the key and I've argued repeatedly over the last two years that national targets are inevitably crude even though they were necessary they risk distorting clinical priorities and damaging staff morale and the top down performance management that goes with them leads the NHS to look upwards to Whitehall rather than outwards to the patients and the communities they serve. But the alternative to top-down targets is not simply to hand the NHS over to an independent board. The alternative is to hand power, real power, to the patients, to their advocates, crucially the GPs and others in primary care, and to other NHS staff. And that is precisely what our reforms are doing. There are four elements to the reform programme. You'll know them well, and I'm not going to go through them in detail, but choice and commissioning, plurality of providers, quality regulation, and financial discipline. And together, they're transforming the NHS from a top-down bureaucracy to a bottom-up, self-improving organisation. And despite what critics say, our reforms are not about creating a free market or sacrificing collaboration in favour of competition. The heart of the NHS and the heart of the new, diverse NHS will always be collaboration between professionals around the needs of the individual patient. And that's why we've placed a statutory duty of collaboration on all providers within the NHS family. And why in future... A key measure of the quality of care that's given by a particular provider will not only be performance, but how it partners and collaborates with the rest of the health service. And it is important that patients should be able to choose not just an individual hospital, clinic, whatever it is, but a pathway that suits their personal needs. And so the quality standards for cancer, for stroke, for mental health and so on will go on being an obligation on all providers and commissioners defining what patients can expect wherever they are in the country but these rules and this expectation of collaboration can't be a blockage on innovation and change and primary care trusts, the local NHS have been given the authority and the money to develop and commission services around local needs meeting those national quality standards but not locked into historic practice so what they now have to do and are doing is work with their GPs to devolve decision making and make practice based commissioning a tool for transforming services for patients and there's a unique opportunity there with the reforms to transform care for local communities it means services much closer to home where that's safe and the right thing to do it will mean, in some cases, centralising care at a specialist hospital where that is best for patients. But again, with the same quality standards wherever the care is provided. But alongside strong commissioning and quality regulation, we also know that some competitive pressure in the NHS creates startling results for patients. A recent survey of hospital chief executives that was conducted by the NHS Confederation showed that patient choice was now the number one issue on their mind and there is nothing more likely to focus the leadership and the board of a hospital on ensuring that they really are treating patients with dignity and respect and giving them the fastest and best care they can than the possibility that patients will simply vote with their feet I will never forget shortly after I became health secretary hearing from a young woman who'd been very seriously injured in a road accident she'd been told by a London hospital she was going to have to wait more than 12 months for an MRI scan this is only two years ago and on the letter telling her she'd have to wait more than 12 months was a handwritten note saying of course if you want to go private it can be done next week same consultant she'd have to pay and as a result I extended the choice that we introduced years ago for elective operations and I extended it to patients who'd been told they'd have to wait more than six months for an MRI or CT scan you probably never heard about it it was never advertised never needed to be the prospect of patient choice miraculously started getting those waiting lists down In January 2006, there were still nearly 6,000 people waiting more than six months for an MRI or a CT scan. By April, that number had plummeted to just over 1,000. In April of this year, it was just 24. Since January last year, all patients have had a choice of at least four hospitals for their elective surgery. We've now extended that as well through the extended choice network, and the rapid growth of the network where any hospital, any clinic in England that meets NHS standards can make its treatments available, for instance, to a patient who needs a hip replacement, shows that the independent sector is now prepared to work as part of the NHS family but to compete with NHS hospitals on a level playing field, carrying its own risk. By July of this year, there will be around 180 foundation trusts and independent providers in the extended choice network available for patients to choose from. And as our acute hospitals go on improving and more become foundation trusts around 100 by the end of this year, this choice or apparent conflict between independent and NHS simply becomes a misnomer. All of them are NHS services managed independently from the Department of Health, all of them free at the point of use. So we're moving even faster to offer patients needing elective surgery the free choice that we promised for the end of next year in our 2005 manifesto. You know, if you look ahead 10 years, it is quite unthinkable that the NHS, the kind of NHS I believe we all want to see, could still be saying to patients, you can only go to one GP practice the reality, if not the theory, in too many places, or only one hospital, or only be given an appointment that may not suit you. So it really is time that we stopped arguing about the principle of choice and got on with extending the practice, not just choice of hospital or GP practice, but which specialist, and critically, what kind of treatment. And while I'm on reforms, I must just mention money. The NHS has delivered spectacular productivity improvement, in the past year, a very marked increase, for instance, in the number of day case procedures, much better for patients, but also releasing money to pay for new drugs, for instance. And I know very well there have been very difficult decisions around cuts to training budgets, developments deferred for patients, but underneath all of that, the NHS treated more patients, more quickly, with better outcomes and higher patient satisfaction than in previous years. And almost nothing will do more for staff, for staff morale and to give them the autonomy they want than escaping from the deficits and taking control of their organisation's future. So greater independence for the NHS is not an alternative to the government's reforms, it's the consequence of the reform programme. So we've delivered a radical reforming program and the NHS is beginning to look very different. But as we create more independence, greater independence and autonomy, and we introduce more members to the NHS family, different providers, we need more than regulation or the flow of money to bind them together. If providers are more autonomous, what values do we need to avoid fragmentation? If decisions are more devolved... How is the NHS as a whole accountable to the public? And I know that staff fear that new private and independent sector providers are a threat to public service values, that using the private sector must mean privatisation. I know too that the public often fear that an efficient NHS means putting money before patients or that local autonomy means a postcode lottery of services. And we need to confront those issues quite openly. I've seen some hospitals, for instance, telling their consultants not to talk to GPs about new approaches to treating patients in the community because the hospital fears losing work. Exactly the kind of fragmentation and pulling apart that staff fear and that would be hugely damaging to patients. Both David Nicholson as chief executive and I have made it clear that that type of uh, behaviour is unacceptable, and a very clear statement of values based on the NHS plan is now included in all contracts with anyone who provides services to NHS patients. But we need deeper work on these issues. It feels unfair that if you're a cancer patient, you'll get a particular drug in one part of the country, but not in another. And it feels unfair because it is unfair. It undermines people's trust in a national health service. And that's precisely why we said years ago that NICE's technology evaluations should be implemented everywhere within three months. And that, in turn, is why getting the best value for every pound of public money is so vital everywhere. But, of course, not everything can be a NICE recommendation. Local health communities need the room and the resources to deal with local uh, priorities as well. A shockingly high level, for instance, of coronary heart disease in one community or unacceptable levels of teenage pregnancy in another mean we have to leave room for clinical and local discretion. We also need to tackle the very difficult issue of which decisions are rightly made locally and which should be made nationally. We need to help organizations and staff balance the competition, which will sometimes be appropriate, and as I've argued, give patients better care, with the cooperation that is essential between many different providers within, around the patient pathway. And the next step in doing all of that, I believe, should be to involve staff and patients alike in developing a new statement of NHS values that could then be enshrined in a new NHS constitution. But as part of the debate on values, we also need to consider the issue of accountability. Part of the chorus uh, for, for NHS independence comes from managers and other staff who simply want to get on with making decisions themselves. For instance, about what services go where. Now, I have no doubt at all those decisions are much better made locally but made as well with effective public involvement. Sometimes the local NHS does that very well but not always. And when local issues end up nationally with ministers it's all too often because there hasn't been the effective engagement and trust built between the local NHS and local people and their local representatives. There's a real opportunity now to strengthen local accountability, to overcome the democratic deficit, if you like, that's always existed in the NHS, to give patients greater collective voice as well as individual choice. And the primary care trusts, many of them with new boundaries, have a powerful opportunity to work much more closely with their local authorities. And that's what we've got to do. If we're going to focus on the health of the nation and not just its sickness partnership between health and social care is an obligation, not an optional extra. Because together they can involve local people in shaping services, in agreeing priorities, in helping to transform people's health using local area agreements for instance to make very clear promises on which they can be held to account. And in Merseyside for instance, the local NHS has been helping to create a new kind of democracy, if you like, doing politics in a different way through its own big health debate live, deliberative democracy in action. And already, too, we can see local councillors through the overview and scrutiny committees of local authorities playing a much fuller part in shaping health services for their area. Increasingly, that NHS local authority partnership involves joint commissioning, joint appointments, or pooled budgets, something that we will go on on encouraging and supporting. In Knowsley, for instance, where several years ago, both the council and the local NHS were rated as amongst the worst in the country, they took an even more dramatic step. They decided, council and NHS alike, to merge their commissioning and their provision of services. In future... We may see some other local PCTs and their residents decide that some primary care trust board members should be directly elected. But developments like this should not be imposed from above. They should grow organically as the primary care trust and the councils become more confident in their own roles and the cooperation between them. I spoke earlier about how we've already created new forms of independence within the NHS. I don't believe as I've argued that an independent board is the right way forward but there are other decisions that might well be made independent of government where hospital reconfigurations are involved often highly contested and difficult. We already have an independent reconfiguration panel. It's led by clinicians to advise the health secretary on cases where no local agreement can be reached. And I think we should now consider separating it from government so that a local council's overview and scrutiny committee can refer a proposal they're not happy with directly to the panel rather than the health secretary. The panel would have to uh, weed out the weak referrals, which the Department of Health does at the moment, but I'm sure they could cope with that. But if we did make the panel separate in that way, then I believe its decisions should be binding which in turn would encourage the local NHS and the Overview and Scrutiny Committee to reach agreement and avoid referral. We should also, I would suggest, consider Bank of England-style independence for the Advisory Committee on Resource Allocation. It's existed under a variety of names for uh, at least 40 years, and it determines the funding formula for primary care trusts. Now, the opposition health spokesman Uh, seems quite convinced that I personally sit with a slide rule calculating uh, the PCT allocations and he's convinced it's all grossly unfair. The reality is that the Secretary of State sets the goal for the Resource Allocation Committee and with a Labour Health Secretary that goal is to secure equity and reduce health inequalities. That decision the goal of the allocations is properly the responsibility of an elected government. But ACRA then provides the exhaustive statistical analysis and the detailed calculation of the formula that no minister could or should try to get involved in. As we secure the full benefits of the reform program and as we give patients and staff more control and greater autonomy I believe we can save the NHS for another generation we can embed its values in a way that builds the confidence of staff and public alike let me end by standing in the future again but a very different future from the one I sketched out at the start a future where the care that you need is personalised to you available when you need it free at the point of use. It's provided by a range of organisations some with staff directly employed by the NHS by public sector organisations some working in social enterprises and the not for profit sector others working for profit making companies. You'll choose not only where and when you get your care but you'll be a fully informed and empowered participant a partner in the decisions about your care and if you want to say to your GP Tell me, doctor, where do you think I should go? What should I do? That's a perfectly reasonable way for patients to exercise their choice. But if you do want to make a choice for yourself, the NHS will ensure that only safe and good quality choices are made available to you. Waiting, the waits that have been endemic in the NHS for nearly 60 years will be a thing of the past. And planning your treatment in a way that's convenient to you will be everybody's expectation. Forgive me, they haven't cured the common cold yet but no doubt they will. And The NHS will have driven up productivity and quality and maintained the confidence of the public who continue to pay their taxes to maintain a comprehensive service free at the point of use. And then too, this is a future where the NHS will ensure that leading-edge treatments are instituted quickly for all those patients who can benefit. But it will also take difficult decisions, legitimate decisions, about what's a good use of the taxpayer's money. And that will be transparent. If individuals want to spend their own money on a million-to-one chance treatment, that's for them to decide. But where the NHS draws the line, that's a collective decision that needs general public understanding and acceptance. So personalised care, leading-edge treatment, people fully engaged in the local and national community, those are the challenges that the NHS must meet if it's to maintain the confidence of the public for another generation. I believe we can do that, but we'll succeed not by giving the NHS an independent board and going back to the days of public sector monopoly, but by giving patients and staff alike the tools and the autonomy that they need to get on with their job. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much, Patricia. Now. As an advocate of choice, uh, the Minister has allowed ten to fifteen minutes for you to okay. allow yourselves to give uh, a choice as to whether you want to ask some polite questions offer It would be good if you use the um, mics which are roving around the audience, and also politeness would probably um, be Considerate of you to say who you are when you're asking the question and if you represent anyone. Somebody <laughs> at the front.
2: Right. <clears throat> My name is David Walter. I'm from the Hackney Keep Our NHS Public Campaign. Right. Um, you say patients have a choice, but when patients do make a choice, how is it that their treatments can be rejected on a cost basis instead of a treatment basis? And you talk about the public having a uh, being grassroots. I'm um, part of my local Hamilton hospital mm-hmm. uh, thing, but it's not a democratically run thing. I mean, there's uh, public meetings, but then with the board of governors can kick us out instead of being fully part of that, how come is that democratic? Would you call that democratic if the governors can kick us out when it comes to important decisions about uh, treatment and health for patients at at my local hospital?
0: Do you want to take a number of questions? What I'd
1: like to do is take sort of two or three ideally related points and then I'll
2: respond
0: to
1: David and to the others and then we'll move on to another group. There are a couple at the back as
3: Well, well. The Secretary of State talked about best value. Sorry, I don't know your name. My name's Lois Austin. I'm from Southwark and Lambeth, Keeper of NHS Public Campaign. (coughs) Now, um, I'm concerned at whether or not spending over a billion pound on treating NHS patients in independent sector treatment centres is best value when we all know that it actually costs more to treat somebody in an independent sector treatment centre than it does on the NHS. Um, so I want the, the question is, is that best value for patients? Is it best value also to spend over a billion pounds to the likes of price waterhouse coopers and other private consultants <coughs> who have been sent in to nhs hospital trusts and primary care trusts around the country so called turnaround teams who have told chief executives and boards of directors of hospitals how to best really privatise their services tender out their services sack staff close wards and close beds and my last point is I really think Patricia is living in a, in a parallel universe. I think the independent newspaper called it last week because, you see, the picture you've painted of the NHS is not actually the picture that we experience on a daily basis. At Guy's and St Thomas' Hospital, my local hospital, seven wards have closed cancer patients are scattered around the hospital with the nurses who deal with those patients having to uh, travel around the hospital in order to look for them. We have a crisis at the Maudsley Mental Health Hospital with the closure of an emergency clinic where uh, the Secretary of State actually was lied to by the Chief Exec and told an alternative emergency service was going to be provided and it has not been provided and those patients who turn up at the emergency clinic now have nowhere, uh, no where to go. So, um, this best practice, I'm, I'm concerned about that because I think the NHS money has really gone into the hands of developing a new private. Uh, health sector, which actually didn't really exe- exist prior to 1997. Billions has been spent and uh, that's not best practice and I think that actually what you're talking about, you talk about you don't want a state monopoly, what you do want actually is a, uh, the NHS really to act like a commissioning uh, body, where, uh, and that's all. But the services are provided by the private sector. And I have right. to say to you that the vast majority of people in this country are opposed to that. And they want a state monopoly. They want a decent, publicly funded, publicly accountable national health service, which your government is not providing.
0: Okay, thanks. There's um, a couple of questions in the fourth row. Could we just take those before moving on? If you put your hand up to... Yeah.
4: Thanks. I'm Harold Schmidt from the Nafia Council on Bioethics. I have a question about whether you think personal responsibility for health has a more prominent role to play in the next 10 years. You mentioned in your talk that the focus should be shifted from um, sickness service to the health of the nation, and you also referred to a constitution. The um, BMA in a recent, recent discussion paper on the rational way forward, as it was called, suggested something similar to have a constitution that sets out the responsibilities of the NHS and also of patients. And they referred, for example, to the Scottish NHS um, Patients Charter, which formulates a couple of interesting responsibilities of patients, such as to look after their health, to be on time for appointments, not to waste medicines, etc. So just wondered whether in the constitution that you referred to, that would play a role, too. Um, hi tom smith from the um, from the bMA um, obviously, from the bma i 'm kind of um, think it was slightly naughty to throw us in with doctors for reform as enemies to the <laughs> NHS and wanting to do down the values of it of course that 's not what the BMA is about, but what the BMA um, did try to point out was that rationing needs to be made explicit and taken seriously because while you um, quite rightly want to see as much care delivered as possible, it is the case already. In local PCTs, some services aren't offered to everybody, but that's quite implicit, and local people aren't involved in that. So to have some involvement in that that, and to make it explicit seems to me to be better than to pretend it doesn't exist at all. I was absolutely delighted to hear you talk about increasing local democracy and the idea of direct um, elections to PCT boards. Um, I, I think that would be a great step forward. Do you mean for all PCTs, or do you think that's for local determination?
1: Right. Let me pick those up before I forget all the points. And, David, on your point, and and I think also in relation to Lois's point on on, um, the, the mental health service in Southwark, these decisions, as I was saying earlier, I think do need to be made locally. One of the things we've done, which didn't exist in the past, is actually put a statutory duty on the local NHS, the trust or the primary care trust, to involve the Overview and Scrutiny Committee, directly elected local councillors, in deciding what the scale of consultation should be for whatever change is being proposed, and then to involve them all the way through. And at the end of the process, when the NHS, you know, there's been a consultation, the local NHS has said, "Okay, this is the way we want to go. Think of Manchester, for instance, and the big reconfiguration on local uh, children's services there if the overview and scrutiny committee or an individual overview and scrutiny committee isn't supportive of the decision they can refer it to me and in almost every case it then goes to the independent reconfiguration panel and I was saying earlier we could make that completely separate from government and I think that might be a very good next step forward. When you talk about governors, this is in relation to a, a foundation trust, is, This is, was Homerton? Yeah. yeah. And you know, I have to say to you part of what we've done and I'm Absolutely sure it was the right way forward, was to create foundation trusts, which are public sector organizations. But, you know, in a sense, we've put the public back in there as members, well, but as members electing governors who in turn then elect the board. Now, you know, if they didn't let you stay um, at a particular meeting, well, you know, that is a matter for the members and the governors of that hospital trust itself and that's an issue that needs to be resolved with them and if necessary taken to the independent regulator it's not one that I actually can or would want to interfere in but what I do want to say is because I know there are some quite difficult local decisions that are being made and this is not a comment on your specific situation because I don't know the details of the changes and where you've got to in the process what I do know is that parts of the NHS take that kind of public involvement immensely seriously and do it very well and others uh, don't do it nearly so well and actually trying to spread that best practice and really enable local councillors and local people to hold the local NHS accountable is exactly what we've been trying to do Lois on your point about independent sector treatment centres I doubt very much if you and I are going to agree on this point um, because although I haven't uh, had the discussion with you personally I don't think I've had it with many people from keep the NHS public but let me just set out some facts as I see it Um, the NHS has always used private hospitals to mop up the worst of the waiting lists when they became intolerable Uh, It used to be called spot purchasing, you know, and people would get completely fed up. There'd be a waiting list initiative and NHS hospitals would go out and just buy extra hip replacements or whatever from Booper or Nuffield. And they paid up to 40% more than what it was costing the NHS to do. It was going on for years. It was just nobody ever admitted it what we've done with the independent sector treatment centres by mobilising the extra capacity of the private sector for the benefit of NHS patients we got that premium down on average to about 11% and in some cases if I look for instance at the mobile MRI scans uh, that we started getting years ago that have helped dramatically to bring those waiting times down the cost is less than the NHS average and what we've also found And it's very interesting, this, is that the independent sector has added to the innovation of which the NHS, quite rightly, has always been proud. Shepton Mallet Independent Sector Treatment Centre, their clinical partners are New York Presbyterian hospitals, one of the best in the world. And what they do, and they do for patients in the southwest is not the old system of go and see your consultant, come back for the scan come back and see the consultant and it goes on and on and on until you finally go on the waiting list for the operation they get it all done on one visit you turn up, you see the consultant, you have your scan you get your diagnosis, you decide that a hip replacement is the right thing and you book it in and then you're back in a few weeks time for the actual operation now, that the patients love I've met a number of them and they they think this is brilliant But what's also happened is that Yeovil District Hospital, people there started saying, hang on a minute, we're not letting that bunch at the ISTC uh, do better for our patients than we're doing for them. So they've changed the way they work, reorganized services with their local GPs. They will now be one of the first hospitals in the country to get to 18 weeks maximum from GP referral to the actual operating theatre by the end of this year, not just the end of next year, as we promised. And on ward closures, I I hadn't heard about, uh, you know, guys in St. Thomas's and cancer patients scattered all around the place. What I have heard from a number of different hospitals is actually one of the things they've done is to bring patients with the same condition together in a single ward because, of course, it's much better for patients and much better for staff. But as you do more day case operations, as you get the length of stay down... You know, as you do that, well, Lois, I go around the country. Well, I do all the time. I spend a great deal of time. I spend, Lois, let
0: let her answer the question no, there are other people Let me just make a point because I've heard later. the allegation
1: of course I have and in, and I'm saying I don't know the situation that you were describing at Guys and Thomas's but what I'm also saying because I spend more time probably than any health secretary just going around the country quite privately listening to staff and listening to patients and what I've also learned from them go to the royal free for instance in north london is as you do more day cases and as for instance a patient with a hip fracture Spends nine or ten days in hospital which is the average for the best top 25% of hospitals in the country rather than 30 or 40 days which is still where it is in the worst hospitals the patients get better faster much more likely to recover far better for patients but you use your resources more effectively and yes, you need fewer beds and fewer wards and that's difficult it can lead to very um, frightening headlines for the public. It can be very difficult for staff as those changes get made, but it is absolutely the right thing to do. And on the issue of consultants, the private consultants rather than the medical kind, um, I recall very vividly meeting staff just a couple of months ago in a West Midlands hospital where they'd been working with some private sector consultants. They had mapped out exactly what was happening to orthopedic patients between the GP referral and the operation. And they discovered that on average it took 200 hours of staff time to get from the hospital receiving the referral letter to the patient getting an operation. And the amount of wasted staff time and frankly wasted patient time in that was horrific. And these were the staff... Telling me how they'd transformed it. they have gone from 200 hours per patient to 30 hours. They can treat six patients in the time it previously took them to treat one. They'd cut the waiting time for an MRI scan from two years. I met the receptionist who used to have to tell patients that they were going to have to wait two years to just a couple of weeks. And The patients, not surprisingly, are delighted. Harold, on your point about personal responsibility, Mm. I very strongly agree with you. It wasn't a point that I had time to, to develop at all. But I do think there's a growing understanding that actually our health depends rather more on what we do for ourselves and our families than what the NHS can do for us. But I also think, and it picks up on Tom's point that we do need to be more explicit and the the patient charter or the constitution may well be the way to do this um, on what NHS staff are entitled to expect from patients as well as what patients are entitled to expect from NHS staff we've made that very explicit in relation to the the verbal and sometimes physical abuse that a minority of patients inflict upon staff, absolutely unacceptable Um, and next week we're launching a rather exciting new NHS website and we'll take the opportunity as we develop that to just say a bit about, if you like, a different part of the social contract uh, which is that contract between patients and staff themselves and Tom that's a completely fair point about the BMA because the BMA although I disagree with you about the the independent board and indeed the use of the independent sector which I know you're none too keen on All of that was uh, prefaced by an absolutely clear statement of the BMA's commitment to the founding values of the NHS and an NHS free at the point of need. So I will make that clear uh, in the the published version of the the lecture itself. As far as um, direct elections to primary care trust boards go, look, I think that is something for local people and local primary care trusts to think about. And all I'm saying is that if people do want to try with, you know, to experiment with that, they should be able to do so. It's not something that should be imposed from above. Okay.
5: Well,
1: let's take another round. Well, think.
0: there were five waiting <coughs> very patiently. The woman in the white there, there's the gentleman in the pink shirt, gentleman there, and this gentleman here. And I'm afraid that's it. We'll uh, we've run this. out of time.
5: Um, hello. My name is Eileen Smith. I live in Greenwich. I worked in the NHS all my life, uh, trained and then became a senior nursing officer in the NHS. So I have actually always followed what's been going on. And what I would like to ask about are things like evidence and inspection. When we talk about evidence, um, well, it's evidence-based that the private sector doesn't work in in America Um, So why are we so rapidly bringing in the private sector here? Um, People who go for operations privately, as the Health Select Committee, chaired by Kevin Barron, said, um, actually that did not take the major numbers off the waiting list. It was the consultants in the NHS that reduced (coughs) the waiting list. Um, And about inspection, I feel there's an enormous democratic deficit now That's crept in in the creation of, first of all, the destruction of the community health councils, which had really got to know the NHS. The the creation of the the new uh, national and public uh, public and private patient and public involvement forums. Um, They are not allowed, not going to be allowed, to inspect private hospitals. Whereas before, we could inspect private hospitals, we could ask for reports, we could ask for statistics and details, and follow up patients. We're not going to be allowed. We would have to make an appointment with the chief executive. That is definitely a democratic deficit, and it's being written into your new legislation.
0: Could we go to the gentleman at the top? Could we make it one question per person, please? Uh, Matthew Sinclair, Taxpayers Alliance. The question I had was, in a lot of your analysis, and from some of the questions, you've been comparing between the two extremes, between sort of Cuba and Hong Kong, between the British NHS and the American uh, health insurance model. Uh, What's your rationale for rejecting uh, models which are somewhere between the two? Some of the models we see in the continents, which involve some other methods of financing, but clearly don't go all the way towards full privatization along
2: the American model.
0: Okay, the gentleman in the pink shirt in the middle there. Okay,
4: my name's Ian Norman from the School of Nursing at King's College London. I want to ask about training because you have mentioned that training budgets have been cut. Well, I want to ask just two related things. First of all, will these in the future be ring-fenced so that trusts (laughs) who are in financial (laughs) deficit cannot raid them? And also maybe you might just comment on uh, the workforce, the, the strategy for workforce policy and planning and whether we're going to get a bit more stability and consistency in capacity
0: building than we have in the past. And finally, this gentleman here.
4: um, My name's Noel Lawler and I'm the head of internal audit for the LSE, so everyone's behaving, which is good. Um, My question, Mrs Hewitt, is that uh, over the last sort of three to four years within primary care, um, one of the things that a number of primary care trusts have had to do, although admittedly not all, in order to be able to balance their books um, is actually to curtail their spending on public health budgets. And that has had, I think, quite a significant impact in terms of skewing mm-hmm. the profile of expenditure that's actually been made through public hea- that's actually made in relation to public health. And one of the issues I wanted to ask you uh, about this is that looking forward again over the next 10 years, do you think there's a need to actually develop a much firmer strategy for expenditure within public health so that, uh, so that c- there can be much more robust local delivery plans Mm -hmm. which have proper allocations of resources between public health, normal primary care services (coughs) and secondary care.
1: Right. Um, Let me just very quickly deal with those. Eileen, on your point about the evidence from the United States, you are absolutely right. If you move to an American style private health insurance system, it's a disaster. The poor miss out. They've got 45 or 50 million people in the states without health coverage, and we're not going there. That was exactly what I was arguing um, at the beginning of that lecture, that those who want to move us to top-up payments and private insurance would take us in that American direction, and it would be a disaster. That's very different from looking at what is actually some very good specific models of care, for instance in the Veterans Administration which is wholly tax funded or in Kaiser Permanente where they've done superb work and some of our, some of our local NHS organisations have been partnering with them and sharing expertise about how you really focus on people with long term conditions help keep them healthier for much longer, reduce admissions to, particularly emergency admissions to hospital and so on. So I think you need to distinguish between the funding system, which is a disaster and we should never go there, and best practice in care and prevention, which we, we've created a lot of in Britain. But we should also be learning from the best in any other part of the world, wherever we can find it. And on the inspection point, I know it's a a very vexed issue. I appreciate your feelings on this. It's been very, very extensively debated in Parliament as we put the the new bill through. And my own feeling is that the new framework for links, rather than specifying, you know, you've got to have this kind of committee for this kind of organisation, will actually stimulate much better public engagement. We disagree on that and I think we'll just have to see how it it works. Matthew, on your point, I didn't want to get into even more detail about different funding systems, but sorry, if I can just just respond, I'm very happy to respond on email to you because we haven't been able to take your question but Matthew, on your point about social insurance, um, I think there are at least two reasons for not wanting to go down that track for us in Britain. Um, One is there is sometimes this belief that somehow if you move from a tax funded system of the kind we've got to social insurance as in France or Germany, um, you get better value and you don't have financial problems. And this is simply not the case. Talk to the French and German health ministers. I mean, the Germans had a huge financial crisis a couple of years ago. They've had to refinance uh, their health system and indeed inject more tax funding in it. The French have got a deficit which the last time I checked was 15 or 16% of their total budget. Ours at its height was less than 1% and it caused us quite a lot of grief to sort that one out. And the other problem with social insurance but also with an American style private insurance system is effectively you put a tax on jobs. You create that huge additional burden for employers and employees because that's the base you're using, that's where the insurance premiums are coming from and actually what does that do and France is a classic case of this it makes it so expensive along with other things for employers to create jobs you have particularly amongst young people and the over 40s very high rates of unemployment so I I just don't see that that actually gives you any great um, advantage Ian on your um, very important point about training there were um, some cuts in the training budget last year and I think any organisation that's gone through very painful deficits and restoring itself to balance finds it's almost impossible to leave the training budget untouched but you can only do it in the short term and training budgets in full um, this year they're there they're in the system devolved to strategic health authorities and what we expect is those strategic health authorities to work with the universities, the hospitals, other parts of the system, to make sure they're getting the best value and doing the best planning. You know, again, it's a bit like Cuba. You cannot plan centrally for a system that is now employing, just in health, 1.3 million people, over 1.3 million people. And I think we need to get smarter and be able to move much more flexibly in terms of getting, getting that training and workforce planning in the future. Let me, just, let me just say again, I'm very conscious of the fact we haven't been able to take every question. And what I'm happy to do, if the LSE doesn't mind facilitating it, is if people just give questions to the LSE, then I will deal with them by email Absolutely. and we can the give them back are at to the people. Door if you but want Noel, on to, your question. very important point about public health, where again there have been real worries over the last year. What I think we've got to do and what we will do starting next April when we move into the new spending review period and we go on growing but it'll be slower growth than we're enjoying at the moment in the NHS. I think we've got to hold the local NHS and local councils accountable for improve, basically enabling their local people to be as healthy and enjoy as much well-being as possible and reduce the health inequalities in their area. And then we've got to help Uh, hold them accountable for giving people the best health and social care as they need it and if you make those two goals absolutely explicit and obviously they've got to do that by delivering the best value for their budgets then I think you get the focus on prevention and public health that that you need and the resources will follow that I'm very against ring fencing funding centrally because I don't think we can possibly know in Whitehall how much should be spent by each part of this huge and complex system in each area of the country on each of the things they're doing. But a new system of accountability, along with payment by results and stronger commissioning, actually will achieve the shift in care from this over-dominance of the acute hospitals, vital though they are, and move people towards focusing much more on prevention and public health and support for people with long term conditions, which is where the NHS needs to be. So that will be my final point. And again, thank you so much for hosting Not this. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> thank, you. That's a really
2: interesting, great question. thank you. Really good.